0: Well, I invite you and encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3. I want everybody to be able to look along, so you either have an app on your phone with a Bible on it, or these guys have Bibles, so they're going to make their way to the back, and if you need one, just get their attention, and those are marked for you at the passage in Philippians 3, Philippians chapter 3. So what is your reason for getting out of bed every day? We all do it, so one would think that we've thought about why. But many of us, the truth is, have never given thought to why we do what we do. The truth is most people never think about the big questions. Why am I here? What am I here to accomplish? Why should I get out of bed each day? Now, here's how a number of folks answered that question. The question, what motivates you to get up each morning? One person said, it's expected of me. Another said, I have this huge jolt of anxiety at everything I need to do, which all should have been done weeks ago. Another said, if I don't get up, I'll probably get in trouble. Somebody else said, my bladder. Another, out of bed in the morning? Are you people crazy? That was from some of our retired folks. Another waxed eloquent and then came to reality. You know, the long-delayed but always expected, something will happen and change everything forever. Oh, and the kids need to be at school by 8.15. Or I have to go to work to pay my bills. They take attendance at community college, and I pay for my classes. Someone said, I get up because I need nicotine. I mean, I need caffeine. Need nicotine. Need caffeine? Don't talk to me. I need nicotine. What is it that gets me up every morning? Well, it's usually my father screaming at me. Some will only get up to have an excuse to go to bed again. I get more done when I get up earlier and stuff. That doesn't mean I actually get up early, of course. Why do you get out of bed in the morning? What's the purpose? That great theologian Jackson Brown, no relation, gave his answer to that question of purpose and direction in a song called Running on Empty. Looking out at the road rushing under my wheels, looking back at the years gone by like so many summer fields. In 65, I was 17 and running up Route 101. I don't know where I'm running now. I'm just running on. The refrain is running on, running on empty, running on, running blind, running on, running into the sun, but I'm running behind. You got to do what you can just to keep your love alive, trying not to confuse, confuse it with what you do to survive. In 69, I was 21 and I called the road my own. I don't know when that road turned onto the road I'm on. Running on, running on empty, running blind, running into the sun, but I'm running behind. And everyone I know and everywhere I go, people need some reason to believe. Another verse says, Looking out at the road rushing under my wheels, I don't know how to tell you all just how crazy this life feels. I look around for the friends that I used to turn to to pull me through. And looking into their eyes... I see them running too. Running on, running on empty, running blind, running into the sun, but I'm running behind. And it ends with him talking to a companion met on the road and saying, I'd love to stick around, but I'm running behind. You know, I don't even know what I'm hoping to find. Running into the sun, but I'm running behind. In essence, it's saying this I don't know where I'm going, but I've got to keep moving. Who knows, maybe I'll run into some meaning and purpose out there. And that's the case with the vast majority of people. I don't know why I'm here, but I just keep on moving, and I hope that it amounts to something. It reminds me of the pilot who announced to his passengers, I've got good news and bad news. The bad news is we're lost. The good news is we're making excellent time." So what is your answer to the question? What motivates you to get out of bed every day? Now, no no doubt most of us would have better answers than those people that I put on the screen a bit earlier or Jackson Brown. Perhaps you'd say it's your family or even something as noble as to make a contribution to humanity. But in the passage that we're going to consider today as part of our ongoing series in the book of Philippians... We're told of the life ambition of a committed follower of Jesus Christ whose reason for getting out of bed every day is to be the purpose and the objective of every follower of Christ. It's a reason compared to which all other ambitions pale and to which that follower and we followers are to give ourselves and to order our lives. I've invited you to Philippians chapter 3. The last part of verse 12 says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So for what did Paul, the one who wrote that, strive in his life? What was it he pressed on toward? What got him out of bed every day? And the answer is this. To be like Jesus Christ, whatever it takes. We saw last week in verse 10 of chapter 3 that it may mean suffering or even death, but the goal stated in verse 10 is to be like Him. The Bible teaches that our ultimate destination is that we will be like Him if we belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 21 of that same chapter, chapter 3, says that Jesus will one day transform our frail bodies so that we'll have a glorified, incorruptible body like he does. And the Bible states it this way elsewhere. In Romans chapter 8, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, it says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And then that purpose in the next verse is said to be for us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. To be like Jesus. And everything works together to that end. That goal will be achieved in the future. The Bible says we shall be like him. And for those who have this as their ultimate goal, it makes a profound difference now. It's not just something that we know is going to happen in the future, although that's true. It makes a difference now. That same passage that says we shall be like him goes on to say everyone who has this hope. And hope in the Bible is a confident expectation. It's not a wish. It might come to pass. It might not No, the Bible promises it. So it is our confident expectation. Everyone who has this confident expectation in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We're going to be like Jesus someday fully. And because that's our desire, our goal, and our passion, we strive to progress in that every day in the here and now. It's to be our goal, as it was Paul's, to be like Christ in our character. That is to think as he thinks, talk as he talks, acts act as he acts. That's the reason that, according to verse 12, Christ, quote, took hold of us and to which God has called us in verse 14 heavenward to be like Jesus. This is what we mean when we say we live to bring glory to God. It means to display what he's like, to display his character, think like he thinks, talk like he talks, act like he acts. The Bible says we reflect the Lord's glory, being transformed into His likeness with ever increasing glory. But friends, it doesn't just happen. It takes effort. It requires determination. As I said in this morning's prayer, though it's inevitable, it's not automatic. And that's why verses 12 and 14 say we press on. That word that's translated press on is the same Greek word. You know that your New Testament was originally written in Greek. And the Greek word translated press on in those verses is the same one translated persecuting in verse 6. You remember a couple of weeks ago that we saw verse 6. And there the Apostle Paul who wrote this is giving his spiritual resume. And he's talking about the things he used to do in the past before he came to Christ. As a very religious and devout person so zealous that he persecuted the church. But now he has that same kind of zeal and even more toward becoming like Christ. He presses on. But the underlying motivation he now has is dramatically different from what he said in verse 6. In verse 6 it was a zeal for self-righteousness. And now in verses 12 through 14 it's the zeal of a man who's exulting in the perfect righteousness of Christ... And he's consequently desiring to be all that he can be and all that he was made to be. Taking hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. So what gets you out of bed every morning? The Bible's answer that each day presents another opportunity to advance in becoming like Jesus. These opportunities include all the stuff of your life that you face on a given day. Every one of them, the good and the bad and the ugly. They're means whereby I can grow and you can grow in Christ-like character. So that's the goal. But how do we achieve it? Well, each week we insert an outline in your program. And if you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take it out so you can follow along. How do we achieve this goal? And I say there, pursuing the prize requires, first of all, a dissatisfaction with where you are. Pursuing the prize requires a dissatisfaction with where you are. In order to continue moving toward your goal, you need to understand that you're not there yet. So look with me at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on. Now, Paul had come to Christ about 30 years before composing this letter. So he had been a Christian for 30 years. He had won many spiritual battles in that time. He had grown much in those years, but he candidly confessed that he had not arrived. Now, when it says perfect in verse 12, it's the word for mature. He's saying, I still have room to grow in spiritual maturity. Now, friends, if it's the case. That the great apostle had growing to do. Is it safe to say so do we? If he pursued spiritual growth into Christ's likeness with energetic zeal. Should we not do the same? This truth that none of us has arrived. Puts the lie to the claims of false teachers on television. Like Kenneth Copeland. Who claim that mature Christians will stay healthy and they'll enjoy material prosperity and they'll wholly overcome sin. Copeland says, the world's shortages have no effect on someone who has already gone to heaven. Therefore, they should have no effect on us here who have made Jesus Lord of our lives. There are whole pages and chapters and books of the Bible that Kenneth Copeland has apparently missed. The reality is the more we come to know about Christ, the more we come to see our need to grow. When we imagine we've arrived, stagnation in our spiritual life sets in. One reason that many of us do not pursue Christ-likeness full throttle is that we're satisfied with just good enough. After all, I'm different that now than I was when I first came to Christ. I have some tangible signs of spiritual growth. In fact, I'm at church today. That's one. That's good enough. But Paul understood that the standard of measurement is not what I was. Hear this. Not what I was, but what I'm designed to be. That, that is, although we've grown today from what we were in the past, none of us are where we should want to be. Friends, it's a requirement for continual spiritual growth that we have an ever-deepening understanding of what Christ is like and how far we fall short of that. And that should be our goal then. And if we do, we will not fall into the good enough trap. Paul understood this, and you see this in the fact that he wrote a number of letters, books of your New Testament. And if you lay those letters out chronologically, that is in the years that he wrote them, from the earliest to the latest, you'll see that his identity of himself in relation to the goal of becoming like Christ becomes an ever wider gap in his mind, even though he continues to grow. He said early on to the Corinthians, I am the least of the apostles. There's humility there. But the apostles were a select group, you'll remember. So being the least of the apostles is still being pretty cool. But then to the Ephesians later he said, I'm the least of all of God's people. And then still later, when he wrote to Timothy, he said, I am the worst of sinners. As Paul grew, the more he learned about Jesus, the more he saw that he needed to grow to become like Christ. Now, you may be thinking, look, I didn't come to church for you to tell me I need to feel bad about myself. I already feel bad enough without you piling on the guilt. But consider what one author says about most Christians' so-called guilt. Ninety-nine percent of our bad feelings about ourselves is rooted actually in pride. For example, suppose you go to a dinner party and you find out when you get there that you're dressed wrong. And then you spill your coffee. And then you don't know which fork to pick up first. And then the joke you attempt falls flat. And when you're leaving, you call your hostess by the wrong name. How do you feel about yourself when you get home? Completely rotten. You hate yourself. You're depressed. You don't want to show your face. You feel like quitting your job. What's the use when you're such a loser? Now I ask, where does all that low self-image come from? Where does all the depressing, immobilizing, self-denouncing feelings arise? Is the answer from God's offended glory or your offended pride? People who are depressed and immobilized and angry because their behavior has injured the glory of God are very, very rare. But people who are depressed and immobilized and angry because their behavior has prevented them from having a reputation of being cool and competent are very, very common. In saying today that in order to grow spiritually, you have to be dissatisfied with who you are, I'm asking for something rare, something uncommon, friends. I'm not asking you to feel worse about your inability to appear cool and intelligent. I'm asking you to feel worse that you possess so little of Christ. The first step in going hard after God is to feel bad about the right things. It's to develop a holy dissatisfaction with your spiritual life. Pursuing the prize requires a dissatisfaction with where you are. And secondly, I say in your outline, it requires a determination to get where you need to go. When at the end of verse 12, it says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, The words press on and take hold and took hold are, in Greek, language that comes from the worlds of war and athletics. In fact, in a battle report, the ancient historian Herodotus used the same words that Paul uses here to describe an army's pursuit and seizure of the retreating columns of the enemy. Remember that when Paul first encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, Christ seized him for his own. One commentator says as Paul trod the road near Damascus, the mighty hand of Christ reached down, seized him by the scruff of his robe and set him on the path to Ananias's house, then to Arabia and then to be the Gentile apostle throughout the world. Here, Paul expressed his desire to to know the risen Christ because he was in the grip of Christ's grace. Paul's whole pursuit of Christ was Christ originated and Christ motivated and Christ propelled. And the present tense that Paul used with these words describes an ongoing, grasping, strenuous pursuit. It's a gritty, I will not be denied. Friends, if we've been seized by Christ and are in the grip of his grace, then we must press on in our hot, grasping pursuit of an ever-deepening relationship and knowledge of him. The gospel allows no room here This for a bland, middle-class ethic that strives to be neither hot nor cold. We are all called, every mother, daughter, father, and son, to a single-minded, determined pursuit of Christ. If you have been grasped by grace, God is speaking to you right now. Do you hear Him? Pursue. Seize. Take hold of Christ as he has taken hold of you. This is the only way to live. No fainting hearts are permitted. Matthew Henry is right when he said, wherever there is true grace, there's a desire for more grace. Pursuing the prize requires a determination to get where you need to go. And that begins with, as I say in your outline, putting the past behind, putting the past behind. Verse 13, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. On May 6, 1954, Roger Bannister became the first man in history to run a mile in less than four minutes. Within two months, John Landy eclipsed the record by 1.4 seconds. On August 7th of that year, the two met together for a historic race. As they moved into the last lap, Landy held the lead. It looked like he was going to win, but as he neared the finish, he was haunted by the question, where is Bannister? As he turned to look, Bannister took the lead. Landy later told a Time magazine reporter, if I hadn't looked back, I would have won. Paul had much to put in the past. Much to put in the past so that he could advance in the future. He had to put his sin in the past. Remember, he persecuted the church and he considered Jesus to be a false messiah. His sinful, prideful past could have been spiritually debilitating to him, but it was not because he did what all of us must do. Come to God in Jesus Christ, asking him to forgive. And here's what the Bible says God does. God says, I will forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. We've got to put the past behind. We must deal with our past, hear this, or it will deal with us. Our past has the ability to become our present unless we take care of it by taking it to God. Our confession and God's forgiveness is the only sure way to put the past in the past and keep it there. Unless we get rid of it, it will get rid of us. Our past can, and it has for many, become a haunting memory that saps our strength, dogs our footsteps, and handicaps our spiritual lives. I ask you, have you dealt with your past? Or is it still a bitter memory, a gnawing pain in your soul? Friends, you must get rid of it, not just psychologically, but spiritually, through confession and correction. And you can forget. It's not to say that things that you've done will not come to your mind in the future. They will. But you can put them aside. And you can focus on the grace of Christ and the cross of Christ that has forgiven your sin. You can forget, hear this, because he has forgotten. But you've got to do that to move ahead. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a moment in this sacred time right now to bow and pray. I still have more sermon. So don't get up and leave. Don't say hallelujah. Don't any of that. There's still more to come. But let's take this moment to bow and to pray to the Lord, and some of you have business to do with God. Taking your past to the past to the foot of the cross and then leaving it there. Casting your care upon him, as 1 Peter 5 says, because he cares for you. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for the example of your servant, Paul. We thank you for his transparency. For your preserving his words and his testimony of his life for us. What he was as a moral, religious man, completely wrong about you and without a relationship with you, going in the opposite direction of a relationship with you, but zealous for what he thought was right. Lord, a man who sinned, a man who sinned grievously by being responsible for the death of your people, by claiming false, blasphemous things about you. Oh, merciful God, thank you for saving him like you've saved me. Thank you for forgiving him like you've forgiven me. Every one of us has a past, but we, like Paul, must put it in the past and keep it there. I pray, Lord, that your spirit is moving on the hearts of some now who've carried around the burden of what they have done for months, for years, for decades. I ask you, Lord, to bring them to the foot of the cross. And Lord, you cast them into the sea of your forgetfulness Grant them the discipline to forget so that they can move ahead. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Paul had to put his sin in the past. He also had to put his spiritual accomplishments in the past. Spiritual victories yesterday could not, he understood, suffice for today. So getting where we need to go requires putting the past behind. And I say in your outline, it requires keeping the goal in front. The end of verse 13, forgetting what is behind and striving toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien says that the word translated straining is a vivid word drawn from athletic games and it pictures a runner with his eyes fixed on the goal, his hand stretching out towards it and his body bent forward as he enters the last and decisive stages of the race. It powerfully describes the runner's intense desire and utmost effort to reach his goal. Now, we can easily imagine the scene with the runner's breathing becoming shallow and fast as he runs flat out for the finish. His legs are hitting like pistons in an engine. His feet pound the course with painful impact. His throat is dry, his stomach groaning. He lays himself out for the finish, sweat flying, his outstretched hands flailing the air. The words toward the goal come from a Greek word from which we get our word scope as in telescope or let's scope out the territory. It means that on which I fix my gaze, at which I am looking. And so I strain to reach the goal, that at which I'm looking. You know, friends, you always move in the direction of your vision. You always move in the direction of what you're looking at. I learned this painfully when I was 16. And one of my first jobs was to drive a pickup truck to deliver auto parts for an auto parts store to repair shops and so on. And one day I was driving the truck and I was on an entry ramp, one of those cloverleaf entry ramps onto the freeway. So I was going around that, and I decided while I was going around that I needed to tune the radio. So I took my eye off the road, and I was tuning the radio. And when I looked back up again, there were weeds in front of me going down. <laughs> you move in the direction of your vision. So if you're floundering, you've lost sight of the goal. If you're not moving, it's because you have no vision. If you're moving in circles, it's because you have a vision for nothing in particular. And so you're on a treadmill that's taking you nowhere. If you have a goal, but it's anything other than becoming like Jesus Christ and living for his mission, your goal is unworthy. If you're half hearted in your commitment, it's because you're distracted by lesser things. Paul was fully committed because his eyes were fixed on the singular goal. In the middle of verse 13, he said, one thing I do. And with his gaze locked onto the finish line, he says he strains toward what is ahead. Have you ever met people who just have no vision for where they're going? They're just taking one day at a time, and instead of leading into life, life is leading them. These are people who are always analyzing, always thinking about it, but never arriving at it. You know, you ask them, what are they doing? I'm thinking about a number of things. You talk to them six months later, I'm thinking about a bunch of stuff. Hey, have you ever settled into a church? I'm still looking for a church. Never settled into that either. It's because they have no focus. Paul was focused like a laser on becoming like Christ. It's the one thing I do. Knowing and pursuing the one thing we're about is more important than the circumstances within which we pursue it. We spend our energies thinking about and pursuing situations and circumstances, trying to make them better, trying to make them more to our liking, when we should put our priority on the goal of being like Jesus, growing in that pursuit. And if we do hear this, the circumstances become the pavement or the bumps on the course of our race. So you think about that, that one thing, in all the circumstances, whatever they are, so you don't let circumstances obscure the goal. And you don't prioritize circumstances over the goal. Even if those are good circumstances. Finishing school, getting a promotion, pursuing your career. I had someone say to me, years ago, not at this church, that they said, quote, sometimes you just have to put your spiritual life on hold. Uh uh-uh. uh. Paul would know nothing about that. Every ounce of energy goes toward reaching the goal of being like Jesus. Pursuing the prize requires dissatisfaction with where you are, it requires determination to get where you need to go. And I say in your outline, it requires a drive to move forward. And who all is to move forward? All of us are to move forward. Verse 15. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. All of us should see it this way. This is not just the Green Beret Christians. This is not you, pastor, because you get paid, you know, to do this good stuff. You know, one pastor said, you know, as a pastor, I get paid to be good. You people are good for nothing. Maybe that wasn't the best way to say it. But But the truth is, this is all of us. This is your goal. It's my goal. It's not just the green berets of God's army. Lest we take ease in the fact that we're still a work in progress, which is what many of us do, let's be honest. Well, you know, you've already said that we're not going to arrive fully this side of heaven. I know that's not going to happen until I die, so I might as well go on cruise control. Unless we do that, verse 16 says this, live up to what we have already attained. That is, as I say in your outline, not only are all of us to move forward, all of us are to move forward now. That is, we don't sit and despair because we're not there. We live up to what we know and then we seek to know more. As is said, a journey of a thousand miles starts with the next step. So take the next step. Because here's the thing for many of us that have been in church for a while. You've heard me say this before, but we are educated well beyond the level of our obedience. We know way more than we do. And so for many of us. What we need most, believe it or not, is not another Bible study or more information. It's to act on the Bible we know. Now, what about the mission of seeing folks come to Christ and seeing new churches planted and using my gifts to that end? If you've been at our church for any length of time, you know that I've said that many times that this is the mission that God has given us for you to use your gifts and abilities in God's church so that we can see his mission advanced in his world. So I thought you said that was my purpose. Now you're saying my purpose is Christ-likeness. But those, are, those go together, friends. God gave the church for the purpose of teaching others to do the same thing. The church's collective mission is to see as many as possible come to Christ and then to progress in looking like Christ. So what is my purpose? What is your purpose? It's to serve his mission while becoming like him. Or you could state it another way, look like him and help others to do that as well. Or you could put it another way, to know him and invite others to know him as well. Those go together. And we at our church have tried to make that possible for you, to give you pathways to do that. That's why we have a spiritual growth process here. But hear me, it only helps if you avail yourself of it. It only helps if you participate in it. I remind you that our mission statement is that CBC exists to help people learn about God, love him and others, and live for his purpose. So we offer you ways in the stuff that Larry announces every week in our program, every week in the structure of this church, ways for you to do those very things and so grow in likeness. But you must take advantage of them. Eric Liddell known as the Flying Scotsman, is known by most people as the runner in the movie Chariots of Fire. You know if you watch that movie that he forfeited two sure gold medals in the 1924 Olympics because the races were on Sunday and he refused to run on the Lord's Day. What most people do not know about him is that after the Olympics in 1925, he completed degrees in both science and theology and he became a missionary in China. In 1932, during his first furlough, he married Florence McKenzie. In 1941, facing the growing threat of Japanese occupation of China during World War II, he sent his wife and three children to Canada to stay with her family while he stayed to serve on in China. He suffered many hardships, but he kept running hard after Christ. And then in 1943, he was placed in an internment camp where he cheerfully served those around him. In 1945, at the age of 43, Eric Lydell died of a brain tumor That may have been caused by his malnourishment and overwork. Lydell's grave was marked by a simple wooden cross with his name written in boot polish. Here was a man whose life was given to one thing. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what lay ahead. He pressed on toward the goal to win the prize for which God had called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. God has called us to pursue that one thing, all of us. So I say in your take-home truth, the gospel motivates us to live for God's purpose. And now, when you're asked the question, what gets you up in the morning? You should have a ready answer, shouldn't you? What gets every one of us up in the morning? What is it that we're pursuing every day, no matter our circumstances? So how does that begin? Well, it begins putting the past behind, moving toward what is in front of you for the goal. But before any of that can matter, you have to have a relationship with Jesus. So in just a moment, we're going to pray. And those of us who know the Lord, take that time to recommit yourself to the Lord's work in you of becoming like him and running the race with that single-minded focus. But those of you who came into this room, for whatever reason, and as you came in, you were thinking to yourself, why am I here? Why did I accept that invitation to show up at church with these people? I don't know what this is all about. Well, here's what it's all about. God had an appointment on his calendar for you to be here today. For you to hear the truth about yourself, about ourselves, and about what you need the most. And the one you need the most is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we bow and pray, this is your opportunity to come to the Lord through Jesus. It's your opportunity to establish a relationship with God that will last from this day into eternity. And will give you meaning and purpose for your life every moment of every day. So you realize, like Paul, who we saw today, realize you're a sinner. No matter your package of sins, no matter your background, whatever it is, yours, like mine, like his, has sin in it. You're a sinner. Recognize, though, that God has provided the solution for your sin. Jesus paid for every sin you have ever committed, hear this, and ever will commit in the future. And so you repent. Just like Paul was on the road to Damascus, he was literally turned in another direction. That's what repent means. Lord, I'm going to go your way, not my way now. I give my life to you now. I'm going to go your direction. You pray from your heart to God when we bow in just a moment. Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize you're the one who can rescue me from that the only one who can do that and so I ask you to save me I give you my life and now direct it as you will let's bow together our father again we thank you profoundly for the opportunity to look into your word to be reminded of how easily we're distracted from what really matters Lord, you made us in your image. You made all humanity to bear your image, to reflect you back to you. But sin has marred the mirrors that we were made to be. We thank you that the gospel repairs the broken mirrors that we are. And whatever has happened in our past to crack those mirrors, that has happened to every last one of us. Some of us have cracked them ourselves. Some of us have had that. All of us have had that. Some have also had others who have marred us and distorted us and harmed us. So now, Lord, we don't resemble what you made us to be. But the Lord Jesus does his reclamation project on broken mirrors. And he rescues us and he begins day by day, sculpting us and making us back into his image. Thank you for that work in the great apostle. Thank you for that work in me. Thank you for that work in every one of your people. And thank you for the work you're doing now in the hearts of some that you are drawing out of the world and to yourself in relationship with you so that you begin your glorious work in and through them. Oh, Lord, thank you for the gospel and the difference that it has made in our lives and the difference that it will make in theirs as well. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.